Our scripture today comes from Genesis chapter 50, beginning with verse 15. First, let us pray. God of grace, in the beginning you called forth life. Your relentless mercy has pursued us ever since. Let that mercy fill our hearts today as we hear your word read and proclaimed. Amen. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph saying, your father gave us this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were also born on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Joseph made the Israelites swear, saying, When God comes to you, you shall carry up my bones from here. And Joseph died, being 110 years old. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What Mary just read is quite literally the last word Genesis has to offer. The next verse of scripture is Exodus chapter 1 verse 1, which means we made it. Genesis chapter 1 back in June all the way to Genesis 50 at the tail end of August. A lot has happened from then until now in the text, in the world around us, here at Shandon, and in our own lives too. So whether it is with disbelief or utter relief, hear those words again, friends, we made it. But before we bid Genesis farewell for now, I thought a brief recap might be helpful. So this is the book of Genesis in 600 words. It will skip some things. 
It begins with nothing more than chaos, with God speaking, let there be light, and creation bursts into existence. Creation God would go on to call good and very good. Adam and Eve test that right out of the gate, leaving God to bestow not just grace, but clothing upon humanity, both of which we have been grateful for ever since. Cain and Abel invite the word murder into our vocabulary, revealing just how broken a people we can be, even, or maybe especially, to those closest to us. Even still, God does not give up on humanity, though maybe comes close, sending a flood that was survivable only if you and your animal friends happened to be aboard Noah's Ark. At the end of that bad weather, God sends a rainbow promising never to do it again. So buoyed by the rainbow high in the sky, the Hebrew people decide to build a tower high enough to reach God. God decides it would be a better plan for people to spread out rather than climb up. And so the Tower of Babel falls and people are dispersed, suggesting that maybe difference in culture, language, and nationality is a God-given, God-intended gift. God then doubles down on that, calling Abraham and Sarah to leave home, but promising them as many descendants as there are stars in the sky for all their trouble. It takes a hundred years, but God makes good on that promise, and Isaac, whose name means laughter, is born. But not until after Hagar gives birth to Ishmael, and then weeps bitter tears upon being cast out. Laughter and tears have been mingled together since the beginning of our story. And laughter and tears would make way for near tragedy as Abraham climbs a mountain and nearly sacrifices his son. God intervenes at the last second, sparing Isaac's life, but neither father nor son ever forget that moment. Abraham never speaks to God again, at least as Genesis tells it, and Isaac never speaks to Abraham again. He marries Rebekah, who gives birth to Esau and Jacob, and never looks back. Esau and Jacob, over chapters upon chapters, teach us about deceit and trickery, sibling rivalry, and what fear can do to a person. Jacob wrestles a stranger who turns out to be God, but coming face to face with God emboldens him to come face to face with his brother. Instead of killing his brother as he promised, Esau embraces him, demonstrating that grace, while it often comes from God, can also come from humanity when we get it right. Jacob and his wives parent a whole host of children, including 12 sons. Those sons include Reuben, the oldest, down to Benjamin, the youngest. Joseph is just slightly older than Ben. Joseph dreams dreams which causes his brothers to hate him because those dreams, like we said just last week, suggest God is not afraid to upend systems that order the world and tell us our place in the world. The brothers' hatred, which was really fear, leads them to sell Joseph into slavery. And so Joseph is taken down into Egypt where he no longer just dreams his own dreams. He interprets Pharaoh's. Finding Favor with Pharaoh means Joseph is highly regarded in Egypt, and that wouldn't have pleased his brothers very much if they had known. A famine in Canaan leaves his brothers very much if they had known. 
A famine in Canaan leaves Jacob to send his remaining sons to Egypt to get some grain. Lo and behold, Joseph is the one in charge of giving out the goods. His brothers don't even recognize him. This gives Joseph a chance to teach them a lesson of their own, but his better nature ultimately prevails, and the first giant family reunion takes place. The famine continues and even spreads so that Joseph moves the whole family to Egypt. And when Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers worry that now Joseph will finally pay them back for their bad behavior. They weep and throw themselves at his feet, begging forgiveness, leading Joseph to say, don't be afraid. Am I God? You planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it in order to preserve life for many people. Not long after that reassurance, Joseph himself nears death, and he says, as Mary read, I am about to die, but God will take care of you. And God will one day bring you out of this land and return you to the land that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when that happens, take my bones with you. Take my bones back home. He dies, he is embalmed, and he is placed in a tomb in Egypt. And that is where the story stops. That is where Genesis stops. The story keeps going. But what Joseph says to his brothers, even though you intended harm, God intended it for good, that begs a pause and a clarification. Joseph's words are not suggesting that God was behind the brothers' actions or that God set it all in motion to ultimately bring it about to good purpose. To interpret it that way would be a distortion of the entire book we just summarized. At the very beginning, God creates the world and everything in it and calls it good. And now we are told that God has the capacity to use everything for good. And everything that happens in the 48 chapters between Genesis 1 and Genesis 50 point to that. Now this is almost certainly not the way God would have done it if it had only been up to God. But God has always invited us into the full scope of living, which means we do often flub it up and get it wrong. And God accepts that while still moving us ultimately toward the full realization of God's dream for us. The wrong that humanity perpetrates, whether it is due to accident or absent-mindedness or even due to evil, the wrong that humanity perpetrates cannot defeat God's purpose. It simply gets wrapped up into God's activity in God's much larger intent. And again, not because God has a hand in making things go that way, but because God refuses to abandon us and leave us behind when things do go that way. Joseph says God intended it for good. It might more helpfully be translated, God produced something good from it. Because Genesis, from beginning to end, 
is actually bound together in one big sweeping statement that the God of creation, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael, the God of Joseph and all his brothers, that God is about one thing, transforming everything and everyone we know until everything is once again good and very good. Now it's just after reminding us of all of that that Joseph says this commitment to goodness, well it also means that God is going to take you back home. And when you go back home, take my bones with you. He even makes them all swear that they will do it. It might be, it might be his most brilliant moment. Because his last words, they both convey hope and they compel hope. You're going to get back home, he says, because he is confident in God's ultimate good plan. You're going to get back home and don't forget you have promised to take me with you. Meaning God is going to be involved in this, but you have a role to play too. Joseph teaches the Israelites and all of us what Genesis has been insisting on all along, that a life of faith is a balance of trust and responsibility. We do not just leave things in God's hands, but neither do we believe that God has no hands but ours. A life of faith is a delicate weaving of trusting that God is keeping God's promises while also doing everything we can to help those promises be realized, at least in part, during our lives. Genesis ends on that note. You're going to make it home, but you're not there yet. You're not home yet, but you are going to make it. The Reverend Michael Curry is the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. He tells the story of his parents visiting a church back in the 1940s. And when it was time for the sacrament of communion, they watched as everyone came forward and took a bit of bread and then drank from a common cup. The Currys were black, the church was otherwise all white, right in the heart of segregated America, where black people and white people did not drink from the same water fountain, never mind from the same cup. But they went forward, and they stood before the priest who hesitated, uncertain of what to do. And then he lowered the cup and he said, this is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you. We are not home yet. Racism is very much our present, not just our past. But nevertheless, Reverend Curry says this was a small sign that we just might make it. And it was a while ago now, 
I was officiating a graveside service back in Kansas, and as we waited for the family to gather, toddlers ran in and among the stones and the bushes of the memorial garden. They were utterly fascinated by the dirt, especially the hole we had dug earlier that morning. The hole that would soon offer their beloved grandmother's ashes a final resting place. A few minutes after the service began, as I offered words of resurrection hope, one of the youngest, her name is Lexi, broke free from her parents' grip, made a beeline for the carefully dug hole, and sat down inside of it. The family just looked at me, and unsure of what else to do, I picked her up and finished the brief service with her in my arms. Afterwards, Lexi's brother found me, and his cheeks were tear-stained, and he said, I know my sister was not supposed to play in that hole, but I'm really glad my grandmother didn't have to go in there all alone. As long as death can still break our hearts, we are not home. But so long as we can sit with one another in the midst of our grief, well, that too is a sign that we are going to make it. I believe this so strongly. I believe that even a session meeting can make a convincing case. Though I will add carefully, this is from a past congregation and not this congregation. A group from that congregation had asked Session to take a public stand on an issue related to guns. And from the first moment of our discussion, it was clear, crystal clear, we were not all of one mind. By the time the meeting was over, more than a few feelings had been hurt. And because it was a Presbyterian church, discussion was tabled so that further study could be done with a vote to be taken at the next meeting. So at that next meeting, we began with a bit of Bible study, a reminder of how to speak to one another in love. And after more than 45 minutes of speaking to each other, mostly in love, we finally voted. When the meeting ended that night, I stood talking to someone who had been fervently against the proposal and I looked up to see a woman who had been passionately in favor of it headed our way. She hadn't spoken a word during this second meeting, and I could see in her eyes there was good reason for that. She'd been storing it all up for this moment. <laughs> and I confess to you, I confess that was when I started praying, Jesus, if you really intend to come back, doing it before this woman makes it across the room would be good timing. She made her way over and she said, there are a few things I need you to understand. And I braced myself. She said, I am not pleased by the outcome of this meeting. I'm not sure I've ever been so disappointed by a decision. And then she said, but I also need you to know that tonight I learned a lot about love. Tonight I am disappointed by the decision my church made, but tonight I could not be prouder of the way that decision was made.
I have never, she said, seen a group of people care more for each other through hard conversation. And by the time I made it home that night, she had sent an email to the entire session. Thank you, it read. Thank you for teaching me what love looks like. We are not home yet, but we are going to make it. That is the story of Genesis, and that is the story of our lives. A balance of trusting that God's got this, and an awareness that we have an essential part to play too. We're not home yet, but we are going to make it. That is God's good and honest truth. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.